laid off. The Blair Thomas podcast is everywhere you get podcasts. So thank you for subscribing on Spotify. Thanks for heading to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Listening for free through my website, BlairThomasMedia.com. And remember, you can always just say, hey, Alexa, play the Blair Thomas podcast and she'll get it going for you. This is a really important episode as um, we're dealing with so much in our country right now from race relations on top of coronavirus to reforming our legal systems. And we're all upside down. So hope you're staying safe. Hope you're taking care of yourself and having those really important, difficult conversations. We'll bring in Emma, my soon-to-be sister-in-law, in just a little bit to discuss all of this. But first, I wanted to give a, a quick a look into what the Bel Air protest for George Floyd really looked like and the Black Lives Matter movement finally hitting the suburbs. And I got to say, I've lived in Bel Air my entire life. I grew up in Harford County, and I never thought that I would see the, the amount of people and the turnout so diverse on Main Street in Bel Air. It was absolutely incredible. and Just the, the power and the energy and, and just it was so uplifting to just, I don't know, be out there with people of all backgrounds, men, women, young, old, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, Native American. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. And just to know in particular that those people were fighting for me and my family and my future kids and our right to just be treated equally. It was so almost indescribable. I mean, I got really emotional just kind of taking it all in and, and just knowing that I was witnessing history because usually the demonstrations and the protests never really leave the town where they originated, right? Like when the Mike Brown situation happened, the situation was mostly contained to Ferguson, Missouri. But in this situation, George Floyd was, was murdered in Minneapolis, but we had people marching of all backgrounds in Bel Air, Maryland. And for this to finally infiltrate the suburbs and just to feel represented and actually, I'd say, finally feel like I, I was a part of, of where I grew up for the first time in my life was amazing. So if you, if you showed up, if you stopped by for five minutes or five hours, handed out some water bottles um, or even made a speech uh, on those days. And, you know, I know there are more protests going on, but thank you so much from the bottom of my heart, because I ended up just like thanking people on my way out you know i just thank you for being here thanks for doing this for me my family appreciates you and you guys really don't know exactly how much that that truly means i was there with my mom and we both were almost in disbelief um but i feel like this situation will lead to a greater change positive change as well it's just important for us all to remember that we all should be on the same side of this you know liberty and justice for all not just liberty and justice for certain people who live in these zip codes and look like this. And it's frustrating because after people co-opted this movement and jumped in and started the looting and the stealing and the violence happened, so many people jump in and say things like, oh, I support their right to peacefully protest and I agree with what they're fighting for. But once they started the, the rioting and the looting, you lost me. And now now I am not going to help out with this Black Lives Matter cause anymore. And it's like, all right, you, you probably had no intention of ever being an ally in this. And it almost comes across as a scold or a finger wag at people like, oh, well, look, we would have stopped killing y'all. But as soon as you started doing this, you lost me. And now I'm not going to help out anymore. And Look, no one in their right mind is pro-looting or pro-violence or stealing in the middle of the peaceful protests that are not affiliated with those people who are going and stealing some Jordan 4s from Foot Locker. 
but don't act like those people are the ones preventing you from being a vocal ally in all of this. Because let's face it, you had no intention of ever helping out. And you were probably the same person who was upset when NFL players decided to take a knee in a peaceful protest and try to tell them that that was the wrong way to let their voice be heard also. I don't like this cycle we're in any more than you do. But I understand why it's happening. And it's frustrating to me that you can even act like you were going to help out when you had no intention of doing so. But for my children's sake, I hope and pray that someday you'll come around. Anyway, today's guest is a special educator and a law student in Baltimore. This is Emma Barbado. All right, I'm sitting with my future sister-in-law and someone who I respect a lot because you, you've you always had a really great outlook, I think, on the world and, and the way that you can change things that you, you want to change and even just um, from where you've grown up and the diversity and everything else. So I'm glad you're doing this with me, so thank you. Um, can you, Emma Barbado, give your own bio and give everyone a sense of who you are and what your role is in the world right now? Okay, well, that was a very nice intro. Um, I am a 30-year-old law student, um, which is funny because, you know, it's crazy going back to school now at 30 when I thought I was supposed to be like a (laughs) grown-up. But before that, I was a special educator, which I really enjoyed, and that's kind of like why I got into law school was actually to get involved in um, representing underrepresented populations. So that's kind of where I am. Also, very excited uh, to be Blair's future sister-in-law. You, 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 you. <laughs> no, it's, it's cool because, like, growing up where we grew up, um, it's it became hard to feel like we had a ton of allies when it came to issues like we're dealing with now and, and the social un- injustice and, and the unrest that we're dealing with. So I feel like, personally... My kids with Marissa are, are going to have a, a great aunt and a great ally. So I feel comfortable as as a person of color that you'll be in their lives because of, I guess, the way you see all of this. Thank you. That's a really high praise. And also what I think that really speaks to is people's ability to change and grow, because I can definitely tell you that when I was a kid and a young adult, like even into my 20s, I just didn't really think about all of this very much and I kind of was just going with the flow and I was one of those people who was it it was enough to be not racist Mm -hmm. you know or just like to not engage in or you know just keeping out of it felt like enough and it was through like teaching and my experience teaching students of color who really challenged me on a very fundamental level and kind of, well, I guess I wouldn't say they forced me to grow because I could have made the choice not to. I could have been like, oh, well, they're making me feel bad about who I am. So I'm just going to like retreat into that. But it was an experience. It was an opportunity. It was like, here, here's a chance for you to either grow or not grow. And it's taken a lot of time to like dismantle just my ambivalence, Mm -hmm. I guess. So what made you decide to want to grow? Well, it was definitely some of the students that I had who would ask me really hard questions. Um, A huge turning point for me was um, I had a student, and we didn't get along at first, but he 
one day asked me, he's like, so what's it like to be white? He was a student of color and I was just like, wow, uh, what a question to have to answer. And for me, that was a, a point of like, what is it like to be white? And that made me think about like, what is it like to be him? And why is he asking me this question? And how must it feel? Is it vulnerable? Like, is this a challenge? Like, and so I'm not sure why exactly he was asking it. It might have just been a challenge to my authority as a teacher or anything like that. But for me, it was like, it doesn't matter why. It's about what I take from it and like, what am I going to do with this question? Yeah. Wow. Well, as a person of color, I knew what I grew up with, right? Being maybe the only black kid in my class in elementary school and having kids, you know, try to touch my hair because it, it felt different or um, my parents having to tell me exactly how to interact with the police or a person of uh, in a position of authority wherever I went. Hey, when you get pulled over, show your hands, put them on the steering wheel announce every movement that you have, you know, you're going to make when you're reaching for your license and the glove box. Like, to reiterate that question, what is it like to be white? Because now a lot of things are coming to the forefront for people who maybe have been able to stay out of the conversation, like the white privilege thing. And it's, I would assume, easy to feel defensive about that and kind of feel offended by the, the, the term and what it kind of stands for. But by your own definition, what is it like to be white and what is white privilege? Why is that so hard for people to grasp? I figured that I would have to say what I said, what my answer was. Um, and I kept it pretty simple because again, I was talking to a 14 year old boy. Uh, and so what I told him, and this is also where educating yourself really comes in handy and like having some ideas before people ask you these questions because I luckily I was in my master's degree at the time and I was taking a class on diversity and how to teach diverse classes and so we had already talked about this a little bit and what I told him was that what it's like to be white is that I've never had to think about it mm. I have never had to worry about the color of my skin, really. Like, I've never had to walk into a room and feel uncomfortable or, you know, be nervous that I was the only person there my color. And I think that that's something that I realized in him asking that is that he has to think about and address and be faced with every day the fact that he's black. And that's something I had the privilege of not seeing color. That's actually what white privilege is. It's like to be able to make that choice, to just be like, oh, I don't see color. Yeah. Because for other people, people of color, they don't have that privilege. So we talked about being the only one in the room and being so aware of that. And I've had conversations with my friends where they say like, Blair, you're just thinking about it too much. Why, why do you think about this race stuff all the time? Or if you, if you didn't let it bother you so much, you'd see that we're all just in this together or whatever. But that's kind of the thing that I've learned about being black in that it's almost like, it's like oxygen in a way where we know that we need it. We know that it surrounds us. But as, as a black man, you're so fully aware that you're only the, you're the only black person in the room. But at the same time, you're not thinking about it at all because it's such a second nature level feeling. I don't know if there's a clinical term for that, but it's almost like a, a low level pervasive thought that you're aware of things like who uh, who's giving you eye contact when they are afraid or whatever. I'm aware of all of these things, but I never really 
think about them in a very forward conscious way. It's hard to explain unless you've been there, but I would imagine it would be similar to how you would feel being the only woman in your place of business, in a sense that you're aware that you're the only lady there. But if you are in certain professions like tech, I would imagine being the only girl in your coding class is something that's so second nature to you that you've forgotten how to even put that on the front of your brain, not the back. I would definitely agree with that. And I think that's a really important thing to do. It's like draw from your own experiences while they may not be the same. Like take that as a point of empathy to be like, so this is a place where I have felt like the only person. And like, let me magnify that because one thing I will say as a, the only girl in your coding class, like you don't necessarily have to be physically afraid or like worried that something is going to happen to you. And the more important thing to take from that is like, where you haven't experienced something, try to be empathetic with something you have experienced. So why is that so hard for people to talk about now? Because I always feel like these are very simple issues and very binary. Hey, this is right. This is wrong. Can't we all just agree that, you know, maybe we've had some issues in this country that we need to address now. But it seems like whenever you try to go into any kind of detail regarding these things, the conversation shifts or we talk about black on black crime or Chicago or whatever else. And we talk about everything but the core issue at hand that, you know, systemic racism or oppression, it's real and it exists, but it's hard to narrow that that conversation for people. Why do you think white people have a harder time sometimes with talking about any of these? Because we always say, have the conversation, have the tough conversation, call out people that you know, but why is it so hard to even get to the point where the conversation is one that you can have? That's a great question. Uh, I think that I can only speak from my experience and like some of the resources that I have encountered and sought out. And that's the other thing is like a lot of times I think people aren't necessarily drawing from educating themselves and like listening to people of color. They're drawing from their own personal experiences and they're drawing from their own narratives and I think, again, like it comes down to empathy. If you're not close to something or if you haven't experienced it in your own life or if you haven't seen it, you might think that, you know, maybe it's not there. Uh, also, a really big part of this is that it's deeply ingrained in our national narrative of the founding fathers, America, the greatest country. Like, And I think um, there is a podcast called Seeing White and something I found meaningful that uh, one of the guest speakers on it said was he said you know it's not making America great again or you know getting back to something we're trying to make America something it's never been before which is actually providing everyone with equal rights like we're based on a country that says everybody inalienably has these rights but they're not actually being distributed equally and that's something that I think we have a really hard time looking at because it makes us question ourselves, the narrative we've always told ourselves, and just basically what the country's built on. Yeah. Is there a guilt that's attached to that, that white privilege, that the difficulty of addressing these things? Is it is it more of a fear? Is it guilt? Is it one of those things where like um, we, we try to point the finger at those who came hundreds of years before us? Because like it, I, I'd imagine... If, if I were a, a, not a person of color and I had someone say like, hey, this white privilege thing is real. We're having some issues. I imagine it'd be hard 
to to not be defensive in that situation and, and not take that personally and say, well, I didn't do anything like I'm fine or or getting someone to get over that sense of me is difficult in these conversations a lot. Absolutely. I completely agree with you there. And I think that it is really easy. It's easier to just say like, sorry, that wasn't me. That wasn't even my grandparents. Um, But I think that's kind of deflecting from what the real conversation is. And that's that, no, you didn't own slaves, but you also benefit from a system that was built on slavery and built on oppressing people. And it's kind of difficult to separate out those issues and be like, hey, like, no, I didn't own slaves, but one time when I worked at a restaurant, uh, I worked with somebody who was a person of color who had this, like, beautiful hair, and I asked to touch it. You know, like, am I a racist? Or did I not consider what it's like to be a person of color and what my action meant. So I think it's like, let's look at not this big amorphous, like I was never a slave owner, but look at like, what am I actually doing? Like, where can I be better? And like, just kind of take it apart to look at your original question. Like, is there guilt to it? Yes, there is guilt. But I think that asks us to like, take apart what is guilt? Like, why am I feeling guilty? And I think it's, a fear thing of, am I a bad person? Like, do I even want to look at that? No, I have other things I need to do. Like, there are so many things that we distract ourselves with so that we don't have to look at, have I done something wrong? Like, I don't want to be wrong. Yeah, yeah, and you mentioned the hair thing. My little sister in particular, right now, she's at the point where she can embrace it and say, you know what, I'm going to let this afro go. She's got this huge thing now. But when she was younger, we'll say between the ages of six and ten, she wanted to straighten her hair and she wanted, you know, long, flowy hair that she could brush easily and things like that. And I, I can't imagine in particular as a woman being in that situation where you say, like, what comes out of my head isn't accepted by everyone. And I want to look like her instead of the way that when I walk out the door, I'm immediately different in some way. I'm, I'm immediately the the abnormal or I'm immediately the the other person in the room just by being there. It's really something that I I know that my kids will have to deal with at some point, but I hope that they can learn from their parents that it's okay to be a little bit different. It's okay to, to have the hair that grows out of your head, and it's okay to have different life experiences and look a little bit different than everyone in your class or whatever it is, because that's a, it's a tricky line, I guess, to, to walk. How do you let someone know that you may be one of 30 in this group that looks like you, sounds like you, But that's a great thing. I think that as a parent, that's something that's really hard to tackle with any differences that you might have. Like I taught differently abled students myself. And I think the thing, though, particularly with race and racism, is that it's not just on you and it shouldn't just be on you. That's also like where white people need to step up and like take actions and... uh, really look at themselves like it shouldn't be on you to just hey it's kind of like what you were saying like your parents taught you like how to interact with the world because you are a black man and I don't think that that should just be their problem that should be something that like 
we as teachers, as fellow students, as white people take on to make sure that people feel accepted and cherished and valued. Mm. Let's pivot to the actual case with the George Floyd murder and Derek Chauvin in particular, who was the officer who we saw um, had the knee on the neck. We've seen the video. We know what it looks like. It's horrible. What do you think will happen with that case in particular, especially from your perspective as a law student who can look at, you know, the conviction and the steps that, that they have to go through? Like, what do you think will actually happen? Because part of the reason why any of the protests or demonstrations are are moving forward now is because we knew that if someone were to do that, there's a thin chance of that person doing real time or being actually punished by the system. So what do you think will actually happen to him and with the other three officers that are involved? That's going to come down a lot to probably politics. And there are laws in place that protect cops in exactly this situation. There's qualified immunity where if you are acting in the capacity as an officer that you're immune as long as you're not going against um, a law that already exists or something against the Constitution, as long as you can prove, and sometimes it's a pretty low bar to prove that you're um, acting within the capacity as an officer and that you haven't broken any other laws or anything like that, then, you know, you're immune. And that- so why does qualified immunity even exist? <laughs> Is that one of those laws that came into being in like the 1800s and sometime when I was looked at as a quarter of a man or whatever and that just never went away? Like, is it a union thing? Like, why do we have something like qualified immunity that specifically seems to protect people like Derek Chauvin who give all good cops a bad name? So I think that qualified immunity is a double-edged sword. I think that for... Uh, Some people like judges who have qualified immunity. It's to make it so that they can make judgments that they don't have to worry about then getting sued for if somebody's unhappy or something like that. But I think in this case, it's and then can get used in a very negative way because we make the bar really low to meet qualified immunity. I think for something like cops, qualified immunity is a really dangerous thing to have because it can remove accountability. And the comparison I like to make is between doctors and cops. Like, why are there so many malpractice cases? Why do we, we don't say the things that we say for cops, like, oh, one bad apple doesn't spoil the bunch. But for a doctor, if you're a bad apple, you lose your license you get sued, you have malpractice cases against you. And what that does is help the entire profession, you know, and why don't we have that for cops? Which leads to the question of why is it so hard to even convict police officers in the first place? Now, we're talking about the ones who make a mistake on the job like that man did. We're not talking about the ones who go out and do their job and protect and serve. I personally am friends with police officers themselves. But for the ones who do screw up and do something that we all can see playing his day is is egregious and and horrible. Is it a union thing? Does it have to do with relationships between judges and prosecutors? Um, why is it so hard to actually put the bad officer who makes a mistake behind bars? It just comes from this huge oversight, really. And it would take more actual like specific laws and training to say hey actually you didn't follow this training or you didn't take these steps that are already mandated like what we need are more laws that they're actually breaking 
and less loopholes out of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because like that, but for the uh, Ahmaud Arbery situation where these two men in Georgia, as we saw, essentially lynched this man in broad daylight and the prosecutors, you know, saw the video, knew what happened. Essentially, these men were just doing God knows what in their homes and living free for months. And the other part was that it wasn't that those who make decisions, it wasn't for for them to see the video and be appalled by and say, bring them in. It was the fact that the world saw that video and then they decided to do something. Because, for instance, with the the Ray Rice situation, the football player who's a Raven in Baltimore who got into a domestic violence incident with his spouse and that video had existed behind closed doors for the NFL, but he was not outwardly punished until the public got word that one of their players was in a situation like that. And then they decided, OK, let's bring him in. Like, and it's sad that the cell phone has somehow become the greatest ally in all of this is because how many countless other human beings, male, female, whoever, have been in situations like George's and... We just we don't know their names. They don't become hashtags because we, it wasn't captured. And, and then it becomes a, 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 my word versus his or this union versus some family who doesn't know how the system works. And then it's just over. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the thing is like what the public can really take from this is that we need to create repercussions where there aren't any. And I think that's kind of what's been happening for years is like you're right. The cell phone is a huge ally and I think it's a Will Smith quote but he said there isn't more racism it's just getting filmed and I think that's like what we really need to take from this is that this is the tip of the iceberg and that should be kind of scary it's very scary for every George Floyd there's 10 or 100 or a thousand other people who have been hurt by this system and hurt by cops and nobody saw it so nothing got done how hard do you think it'll be to actually create some kind of tangible change to to put laws into place we've seen the the graphics of the eight can't wait which are eight tactics to to reduce police brutality and reduce the deaths um in police custody is it a matter of let's just keep pushing let's keep protesting and and eventually they'll cave like do you think it'll be hard to actually create a, a system that is different than the one we have now and create some kind of repercussion for those who do break the law in some way i do think that'll be hard I think it's always hard to get laws in that are meaningful and well thought out. And I think in particular, sometimes when we push laws too quickly, too, and I'm not saying this shouldn't happen quickly, but I'm just saying that we need to make sure that when we put these laws in place, that they are actually well thought out and they're not just um, pushed for an agenda. And the example I want to make is we have laws in Maryland specifically after um, the shooting at a school in St. Mary's, where after that, um, we had a safe-to-learn law, which meant that every school had to have either a resource officer in the school or be able to have officers readily available in a situation. And while on its face, that's like, oh, great, now it's safe to learn if there's a school shooting. But what's really happening because of that is students are getting... uh, police records for things that normally would have just been an in-school reprimand or something like that. So now the police are getting involved and it's basically a school-to-prison pipeline. 
Wow. So I think that's something that's really important to consider when we're talking about like what kind of reform are we going to make and making sure that it's thought out and not just something that pushes through or is performative or, um, you know, doesn't create the changes that we actually want. Yeah. What do you think those changes will actually be? I took a screenshot of something that I thought was really good. Reformist reforms versus actual abolitionist steps. So like reformist reforms just continue to expand the reach of policing. It doesn't actually change things. Things like body cameras. Well, I mean, you can turn that off. Community policing. That's like having police officers out in the community all the time. Just more training. Um, Civilian review and oversight boards or just jail killer cops, the bad ones. But then like steps that might actually have an overall impact, like a bigger impact would be suspending the use of paid administrative leave for cops. That's a repercussion. Like, again, like people are talking about defunding the police. And if you cut off people's money, that is a big deal. And so someone knowing that if they're going to be under investigation, they're not going to be getting paid while they hang out under investigation. That's a pretty big incentive not to like do something that would cause them to be investigated you know what's sad too as we're sitting in the middle of a pandemic still we've seen so many medical professionals go and work in their environments and care for these people who have this mysterious disease that none of us can seem to figure out and so many of them are are under equipped or or just don't have the proper tools to complete their job at all But it seems like as soon as there is an unrest in some city somewhere, so many departments roll out with such a a well-funded and well-equipped staff of individuals who seem to have every... Like, how do we have tear gas but not masks for all the hospital workers, I guess is my point. Yeah, so actually I was talking to my partner about this last night, and we were talking about how, like, good or bad, this kind of just, like, how American economy works since World War II is we're super great at making weapons. Like, we create weapons for everyone in the world, including ourselves, and you have surplus weapons that then end up in the hands of the police. And then you have, like, small counties in, I don't know, Wyoming that have tanks. Like, no police force really needs a tank, but because of how our economy works and what we produce... We have a lot of weapons, and they end up places, and police force can get them cheaper, and it's kind of like Stanford Prison Project, where when you give somebody a tank, they're like, maybe I should use this. <laughs> when do we get to bring out the tank? Yeah, yeah. like, uh, we got the tank back there. Could we bring that tank out yet? And they're like, oh, good, a protest. Bring out the tank. Yes. Well, I mean, let's be honest. Like, if, if I worked on a police force and I got to bring out the tank, I'd be excited about that too. You know what I mean? Like, it, it would be hard not to be amped up and, and ready and, and to use the tools because, let's face it, like, for, as, as a guy, we all play with G.I. Joes. We all play Call of Duty. We like when stuff blows up. We like when things are big and powerful. And I think that's a key word. We like to be powerful. Yeah. That's exactly the problem. That's why I mentioned the Stanford Prison Project is we've had over and over things that show us that when people are in power, it can be intoxicating it can change the way you think about things and it certainly makes you use it yeah whether you are abusing or not which in a lot of cases people do having that power can be a problem yeah it must be hard to to know how exactly how much power you have without wielding it yeah that's a 
really great point. And I think that that, again, comes down to this could be a rising tide for everybody. If there are repercussions for people who do abuse power, then we don't have to ask that question for your friend. Like, how does it feel to fight the fight for all the other bad cops? Because they wouldn't have to, because there would be repercussions and we could get rid of people who abuse that power. And I think, again, like this kind of comes back to doctors and malpractice and having systems in place of liability make it better for everybody. And they make it so that like, you know what, there's a bad doctor over there who like accidentally cut off your hand because they're not good at it. Like, I don't think every doctor cuts off hands. Sure, sure. But we know that if a doctor were to cut off a hand, <laughs> we still would not be able to go to him when we have a, a carpal tunnel issue or something. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty extreme example. But oddly enough, I don't think it's that it's it's pretty analogous to what we're dealing with now, I'd say, in that if you if you were a doctor and you cut off a hand, you just wouldn't be a doctor anymore. You know, it's kind of surprising, actually, how often there are malpractice practice cases of people like leaving a scissors or a sponge or a scalpel inside of someone like it's like <laughs> the what's that game where you have to like operation pull? yes <laughs> it's just like operation we're like oh i'm sorry we left the rubber band in there it's like very surprising how often that happens that's something but, i want to google but i probably shouldn't google because it's probably going to scare me yeah. um, we talked earlier about being anti-racism as opposed yes. to just saying oh i'm not racist or being i guess um neutral when it comes to issues of racism. Do you have a problem also with keeping people on topic or is it just uh, me as a black guy seeing things that I don't know, are particular. I think this is a really hard thing to keep on topic about. I mean, even when I try to think about it, it's hard to stay on topic sometimes because there is so much ingrained and there is so much that can feel defensive that like you know you just have this very gut reaction of like putting your back up and also it's so much easier to talk about like what we were saying before about this like amorphous system or this thing that's you know bigger than and those topics are a lot easier to make blanket statements as opposed to when somebody says like hey this made me feel this way and it's a lot easier to disregard that and talk about something like bigger and um you know something that maybe they don't feel as threatened by something that's like oh well this big thing's not my fault so i don't want to talk about this little thing and also like in particular with the people talking about looting like you have to ask what are you valuing like when you say i will not stand for my target being burned down you're valuing goods and capitalism more than you're valuing a person who died. And I think that, like, that's something you really have to question. Like, when you're making or thinking those statements, because I have in the past definitely thought that, like, oh, well, looting's bad. You're being bad. But, like, there's so little left that people will, like, listen to or react to. And I guess people just value stuff more than people so if that's the way to get the message across then like what do you expect people to do yeah i mean when you think about this situation now it's easy i would imagine for those who weren't aware of what our country was built on in terms of slavery and the middle passage and jim crow laws i would imagine it is easy for those people to say like Man, like, why are all these black people so upset? And why are they why are they burning them down? They you know they've only been killing people for in the street for the last five years. Like, man, like, why do they have to riot over that? Why do they feel so upset about it? But when you when you look at everything and remember that 
this isn't a, a seven-year-old issue that started with Trayvon Martin. This is a three to four hundred year issue. And finally, people are getting to the point where the rioting and the, the protests and demonstrations are just the result of people who are just fed up yeah. and just angry and just Haven't don't know. Heard. Yeah, don't know how to, to, I guess, place their anger. And that goes back to the education side, which you talked about also, and that so many people, especially in the last two weeks or so, have been bringing up these different historical events that have happened, like the Tulsa race riots or and the Black Wall Street thing, and even issues that I you know, hadn't known about. I think if there was a way for, our, for us and our school system to find a way to, to educate everyone properly on this, we'd have less people saying, well, they, they shouldn't be so upset. So as someone who is slash was an educator... What do you think we can do to move forward with our education system to let people know exactly what happened at a younger age so that this is more of a tangible issue now? That's a really good question. And I think I was in a really unique position where I had a curriculum that wasn't fed to me by the county or anything like that. I was able to create my own curriculum, which allowed me to sometimes take time and stop when a student had a question or when there was something that came up, we could take time and actually discuss it and approach it and give it space and not say, oh, let's like brush this under the rug. And I think that like a lot of teachers are in a difficult position because they have um, like quotas that they have to meet or they have timelines that are really strict and regimented. And so it has to be built in at a upper level like we have to legitimately make time for it and time in a meaningful way not just like oh well this is a check mark on my thing that I have to get done and that's a I mean I could say a lot about education sure <laughs> sure well a lot of yeah. it probably comes down to the fact that a lot of teachers are, are paying for school supplies with their own money and they're pretty and, strapped yeah and they're strapped and on top of everything else they had to deal with financially and just the stress of just being a teacher, especially in the city, you know, and, and having this curriculum that you have to check off, you know, it, it, it has to be tough to say, like, hey, I need to educate my kids on this, this particular way. I think it comes back to like what we were saying before, like it shouldn't just be one person's job. I think that that's something that parents and communities need to take on too. like the School should not be the only place people learn about race. Like, it's a great place to start, but people need to take it upon themselves to talk to their children about it, talk to their friends. Like, that's something that is a really important part of educating your own. And also, like, not making that a person of color's burden to carry for you, too. Like, just take some onus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that seems to be the, the one thing we say, especially now in the social media era, where it's like, how am I supposed to explain this to my kids? And how am I supposed to explain gay marriage to my four-year-old or whatever? And, you know, that that is, at its core, the uncomfortable con- conversation that we're forced to have about those things. And, you know, I, I look at what Germany has been doing and is doing in regards to education of their checkered past. And I'm in no way comparing what's happening in the U.S. to black people to the Holocaust, which is one of the most terrible human errors that we've made. But they have found a way to integrate knowledge of Germany's past 
and Nazism into their school system and letting their kids know exactly what happened and how they can be better from that. And that's one thing I think that we've not done as Americans is that we've kind of wanted to 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 dodge some of those trickier issues, especially at younger ages. And I don't want to call them whitewashing those certain uh, uh, movements that we've had, but it for a lot of people, they seem to think that Martin Luther King was a guy who just made speeches and, and told everyone to hold hands or Rosa Parks just did that one thing. And those two things just completely wiped out the civil rights movement. There was a lot of there a lot of other things that happened, including the, the Tulsa race riots and everything else, where not a lot of people know exactly what goes into that. And I feel like if you did, we'd have less conversations that, that began with, OK, well, I, I, I don't understand why. Um, and to go to the parenting aspect, I've had parents reach out to me recently and say things like, well, thanks for for speaking on this because I've had a chance to share your words with my children, which I've tried to just be as open and honest about all of this as I can, especially now that I don't have any restrictions on what I can say from my corporation when it comes to this stuff, because we don't want to make the mass upset. But when do you think is the proper time and the proper way to talk about this with kids? Especially kids who are not of color as well. Yeah. So if you have kids, you know they're not stupid. And they're taking in a lot more than you think they are. So honestly, as a teacher, I would say the earlier the better. And you want to make sure you know who's controlling the narrative for your kids. It's kind of like you were talking about Martin Luther and Rosa Parks and like those are the only two stories we get to hear during Black History Month. But think about who's controlling that narrative. Like who who designs the curriculum? Who says what we get to hear? And I think that like you want to make sure that you're taking in information and passing it on to your kids that's from a variety of sources and from a variety of people and especially people of color, like from, especially if you're white and you're, you have white children, like you want to make sure that you're not just letting your voice be heard, that you're, that they're hearing other people's voices. And so, I mean, how do you have conversations about any difficult thing? Like, you know, you have to at some point have the sex talk. So how do you navigate that? Like you read a book about it, maybe you think about your own experiences, you ask somebody else, like, you know, how do I approach this thing? But as always, I feel like the earlier, the better, and the more honest, the better. Yeah, there was a um, pro basketball coach named Greg Popovich who coaches the San Antonio Spurs, and I was listening to the Flying Coach podcast, which he was a guest on, and he was discussing all of this, and he mentioned one particular instance where he was at his home, and he was watching the news, and they showed the video of George Floyd being you know, taken in front of us. And he said one of his grandchildren, who was maybe between the ages of six and eight, walked into the room and witnessed what was on TV and said, Grandpa, like, what is that? Why? Why does he have his knee on his neck? Why? And Popovich said he just turned the TV off and he just like out of reaction, just shut it off and, you know, tried to change the subject and briefly tried to explain and just kind of dodge and move on. And then he, he said to himself, well. Would it have been better if I had to just let him see what was happening and explain to to this eight year old why it was happening and gone into it then? Because for for people of color, we don't have that luxury of just turning off the TV, you know, because when situations like that were to happen, if I were younger, my parents wouldn't just be able to just turn it off and say, well, let's let's not talk about that because they 
they have to talk about that. My parents had to tell me how to interact with police. They, they had to tell me these things because if they didn't, I'd be walking around the, the world and just that ignorance would, would have given me a disadvantage. And I, I think it's, we, we talked about the privilege thing. I guess the privilege is the ability to turn off the TV and not have to explain it to your eight-year-old yet. Whereas the lack of privilege is the forced conversation that you have to have because it's literally a life into the situation. I mean, I think you answered your own question there. It's if we're expecting kids of color to carry this burden and to have to have this information, then whites kids should have to carry this with them. And I think that's where the empathy comes in. Like, it's really important that a kid walked into the room and said, why? Because that's something we should ask ourselves. Why is this happening? And not, like, pull from our scripted answers for that we've had our whole lives, but be like, really, look at this situation and be like, why? Like, approach it with new eyes, like with kid eyes. Mm -hmm. I I think that's a really important thing, like you said, too. Approach it with kid eyes and and explain it to yourself as you would explain it to your eight year old. And and if there if if there's a part of you that's upset or is bothered by the why, then do something about it to to reverse it and to change it. And whether that's um, walking on a picket line or or voting as you see fit, Ask yourself the why. And I think it's important to, to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations because we're there now. We don't have the luxury of just being comfortable anymore. Just learn to be comfortable in these uncomfortable times. And also, I think that like there's a point of making students and children feel safe when you're talking about these things, too. Like, I was thinking about what you said about, like, should he have let his kid see this? And... I think that there are ways to talk about it that aren't like, look at this graphic video or something like that. Like, you know, it can be really scary for a kid. And I think that like, it's important to make sure that you take a scary situation, but make children feel safe and like approach it in ways like, hey, let's go to a protest together or let's just hand out water bottles if that feels better. But like to normalize taking action and to make it feel like a safe, good thing as opposed to a scary thing. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, Marissa and I have had that conversation. And how do we talk about these things? And, you know, I'll obviously have a, a bit of an advantage because I've had that talk before um, from my parents, but how do you instill a knowledge of what our country has gone through without creating this persecution complex where, um, young boys and girls of color feel like the world's out to get them and that, you know, they're wrong for looking the way that they look or whatever else. Because there's a thin line, you know, she very eloquently put that I don't want them to grow up angry at white people, but how do you displace that, that anger, you know, like maybe that anger turns into activism or, or, you know, it doesn't have that anger may not have to come out in verbal assault, but you know, I, I think we all should be a little upset about what happened 300 years ago. Yeah, and I think that, like, that statement really shows what a, a lot of people, I think, are feeling. Like, it's uncomfortable to be white right now because we are 
benefiting and a product of and have a responsibility to dismantle something really big. And it's very tough to like walk that line of like being angry, but also not projecting onto a particular person or a particular thing. And yeah, I mean, that that's really, really tough. And I think that it has to do with like being like, this isn't about me. This isn't about me being white. This is about me being a part of something that I have responsibility to help take apart. Yeah. And one of the smartest things I've ever heard is that racism does not stand up well to contact. Yes. And being in situations where you're not the only blank in the room, whether it's a gender thing or a sexual orientation thing or a race thing or whatever else you want to say, putting our kids and putting ourselves in situations that force us to say, hey, like there are lots of different people in here. And, you know, it's, it's hard for people to say, oh, man, all blank are blank if they've never met or had a conversation with someone who was from the Middle East or um, if they ever sat down with a gay person and saw that they're not just these heathens who go out, you know, like whatever else it may be, that that contact, I think, is so important for our kids. And I, I speak as a person who had plenty of contact and growing up in the school system and, and, and where I grew up in that so many kids and, and so many adults benefit from that contact. But um, I guess we'll close with that. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for doing this for real. Like I um a lot of it's cathartic for me because um I think racism in particular is a form of trauma and I think a lot of people like myself need to just talk about this stuff and I I really do mean that I'm so appreciative that you'll be in my kids' lives because it's hard to navigate um and, and for someone like yourself who, who's educated and empathetic and, and just has a good heart, I, I really do appreciate that and for you doing this too. Thank you. I mean, I really appreciate it too. And I, I just want to say that like, I appreciate you talking to me about this and letting me make stumbles and errors. And because I'm not an expert, I'm also just another white person who is trying to like figure out my place in all of this and figure out what I can do. And I am going to make mistakes and I know that I say things that are stupid sometimes or not quite right, but it's about like being able to have somebody to talk to who I can go back with and like work through those things and grow from them and change and that I'm not just quagmired in not knowing. Yeah. Yeah. The more, the more mistakes we make so often means that we're on the, the, the path that helps us grow. Yeah. Um, because it's you know, the comfortability for so long just meant that we were just in a place where we, we, we perfected the situation that we were in. And that meant that no mistakes were made just because hey, I know how to navigate these four corners of this room. And if I go outside of this room, that's where the mistakes happen. And I don't want to make mistakes anymore. Yeah. I think that's the thing that a lot of white people are really afraid of, like making mistakes or being wrong right now. But like, we are wrong a lot and we don't know exactly and it's on us to try to figure out what is the right thing to do. Mm-hmm.